1: What? I'm your host, Tom Kearns, and welcome to the Anglo Saxon England Podcast, episode 41 King Athelbert of Kent. Any list of the most consequential Anglo Saxons would need to include King Athelbert of Kent. As the king who welcomed the Augustinian mission to Britain in 597 and gave them his protection, Athelbert were certainly responsible for the start of England's official conversion to Christianity, an event that would have massive cultural and political implications for later generations. At least, that's the traditional narrative. To what extent is Athelbert's reputation deserved? As I will show in this episode, much of what he pioneered vanished soon after his death, And consequently, it seems that his actual importance to early Anglo Saxon England is somewhat overstated by later hagiography. This is not to say that he wasn't important, only that we need to separate later generations of myth making from the actual historical evidence. Despite his place in British history, our knowledge of much of Athelbert's life is extremely shaky. For example, In regard to the start of his reign, there are at least two different traditions extant in our evidence. Bede, in his ecclesiastical history, and whenever I mention Bede in this episode, it's always going to be from the ecclesiastical history, tells us that at his death in 616, he had reigned for 56 years, putting his accession to the throne in 560. But Bede also says that Athelbert died 21 years after his baptism, which would put his death in 618, assuming that he was baptised with the arrival of the Augustinian missionaries in 597. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle has its own dates, saying as it does that Athelbert became king in 565, and that he died in 618. We can add to this comments by the Frankish historian Gregory of Tours, which seemed to imply that Athelbert's father, Eorminric, was still ruling in Kent in the 580s, and the problem becomes very difficult to pass. Possibly, and this is my own suggestion, Athelbert began to rule as a sub-king in western Kent in the 560s, under the overlordship of his father, since we know that this was a practice of the later Kentish kings to have their heirs take on that position. There are later traditions that Athelbert himself did something similar by setting up his own son Eerdbald as a sub-king in the west. Although, bear in mind these traditions and the charters claiming to come from Eerdbald at this time are now all recognised as forgeries. But if Aeomenric had a similar policy in regards to Athelbert, then later writers would remember his reign beginning in the 560s, but due to his overshadowing his father in terms of historical importance, they assumed that he began ruling as a sole king in Kent at that time, rather than as a sub-king. This would also solve the problem of Aormenric's arranging his son's marriage to Bertha, who, as I mentioned in the last episode, was born in 565, a fact that would make Bede's suggestion that De died in 560 impossible. It's also possible that when Bede claimed that Athelbert died in the 56th year of his reign, he actually meant the 56th year of his life. Fifty-six years is an extremely long reign by early medieval standards, and several historians have made this observation. Thus, not only may Athelbert have been made subking in 560, he also would have been born around that year too. If the creation of the subkingdom from the annexation of the Saxon polities in western Kent had occurred only recently in history of Kent, and we really don't know for certain when it happened, then the formal recognition of his heir by Aormenric with the creation of the sub-kingdom would also make some political sense. So the theory that I am proposing here, just to be clear, is that Athelbert became sub-king in Kent around 560, and that he succeeded his father as the sole king of Kent upon his father's death in the 580s. By this time, he was probably already married to Bertha. However, much like the start of his reign, The marriage to Bertha also raises questions in regards to dating. You will often find people saying that the pair married at some point around or even prior to 560. This is impossible though, since we are told in Frankish sources that Bertha was born in 565, and obviously you can't marry someone before you're born. So they must have married at some point after 565, but before the arrival of the Augustinian missionaries in 597. A marriage alliance between the King of Kent and kings in Merovingian Francia made some sense due to the already established cultural and economic ties between Kent and the continent, which I talked about in the previous episode. There is some debate, though, about whether Athelbert was a formal vassal of the Frankish kings, and I apologise that to talk about this I will need to talk about the incredibly complicated politics of the Merovingian Franks. Although the Franks ruled what had previously been Gaul and what would later become France, during the Merovingian period there was no single kingdom of the Franks. Instead, the land was divided into smaller kingdoms that were often at war with each other. There was Austrasia, Neustria, Burgundy and Aquitaine to name just a few. So, rather than being subject to the Franks generally, Kent would most likely have been subject to one of these smaller kingdoms. A letter sent by Gregory the Great to King Theudebert of Austrasia, a kingdom centred on the River Musa, which controlled the point of Francia closest to Britain, the point where you can now find the modern city of Calais, asks that the king protect Augustine and his missionaries by referring to the group's goal as the conversion of Theudebert's subjects. This would seem to imply that the people of Kent were seen as subjects of Austrasia, although this could easily have been rhetoric meant to flatter Theudebert rather than an actual reflection of his power. That this was simply flattery may itself be suggested by Athelbert's marriage to Bertha. She was the daughter of King Charibert, king of Neustria, the kingdom which had its centre in the modern city of Paris. If Athelbert was subject to Theudebert, then it seems odd that his overlord would tolerate a marriage to the daughter of one of his rivals. We can speculate, then, that Athelbert was not a formal vassal of any of the Frankish kingdoms, but that he was certainly closely tied into the politics of Francia, and this enabled him, or more probably his father, to play the different kingdoms of the Franks against each other for political gain. As I mentioned in the episode on the Augustinian mission, part of Bertha's marriage contract was that she be permitted to continue practising her Christian faith, despite Athelbert's paganism. To this end, Athelbert allowed her to bring a bishop to serve as her personal chaplain, for reference that bishop's name was Leudhard, and he permitted her the use of a small Roman church in Canterbury. This certainly also opened up Kent to cultural influence from the continent. It's probable that some Christian infrastructure still survived in Kent, since any church gifted to Bertha by her husband would need to be properly consecrated and staffed. The prevalence of Christianity among the romano britons is a hotly debated issue, and in Kent, Christians probably came as traders from Francia, so any church infrastructure in the kingdom may well have been established by these traders, rather than necessarily being evidence for the survival of Christianity among the local British population. There is some good evidence from later Scandinavia during the Viking Age, for rulers permitting Christian traders to build and maintain churches within their trading settlements. So, for example, in the Swedish settlement of Birka, which was a preeminent trading post in Viking Age Scandinavia, there were churches built for local Christian community members and tradespeople, even though the kings of the Swedes at the time were not formally Christian. It's possible then that, particularly given the widespread trade with the continent that was occurring in Kent around this time that something similar was occurring, and thus Bertha and her bishop were able to use this already existing infrastructure for their own religious ends. I touched on Athelbert's conversion in the Augustinian mission episode, so I won't go into too much detail about it again. Suffice to say that we don't know exactly when he became a Christian, It is possible that he was already Christian in 597 due to the influence of his wife and her bishop. Of course, reporting that would not have aided Bede's narrative about the importance of Rome and Roman custom in English Christianity, so that may explain why that isn't recorded in his book. But it's also very possible that Athelbert, while tolerating Christianity, did not convert himself until after the arrival of the missionaries. We simply don't know. What is more certain is that Athelbert had formally converted by the year 601, since in that year, Gregory the Great wrote a letter to him addressing him as a Christian king, and encouraging him to promote Christianity to his people. As I will discuss in more detail in the next episode, though, the conversion seems to have only been on a small scale, since some members of Athelbert's own court, including his own son and heir Eudbald, remained pagan.
0: And with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their
1: stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. Hello, listeners. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. I just wanted to let you know that if you enjoy what I'm doing here then it really helps me when you leave a review or a rating on the podcast provided that you're using to listen to this. It also really helps when you subscribe to the show's YouTube channel or when you become a supporter over on Patreon, where you can get access to bonus episodes, add free episodes and transcripts, all by pledging to one of the show's patron tiers. And speaking of patrons, I wanted to give a shout out to David Lindemann, Che Christian Padron and Jay Lawton, who recently became patrons. Thank you so much for your support. It really means a great deal to me, and I hope that you're enjoying the extra material that you now have access to. Anyway, back to the show. In addition to being the first Christian king in England, Athelbert was also recorded by Bede as a king who held imperium over all the other kingdoms south of the Humber. In the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, Bede's register of these imperial kings was adapted into Old English as the list of Bretwalders, a term that has long haunted the study of early Anglo-Saxon England. I spoke during the Mercian series in particular about how partisan Bede's list is. He includes no Mercian kings in it, for example, despite admitting at the end of his ecclesiastical history that in 731 King Athelbald held power over all the kingdoms south of the Humber. For this reason alone, scholars have long treated Bede's list with suspicion. There is also no evidence that the idea of imperium or Bretwaldership had any real meaning for early Anglo Saxon kings. Certainly, Bretwalder is not a formal title, rather it's a retrospective appellation, and so we mustn't place too much stock in it. However, even if the list is questionable, it does seem to record some memory of kings who were consequential, not only for their own peoples, but also for others. For example, the Bretwalder listed immediately prior to Athelbert is Caolin, and if you'll recall, his big impact was the rapid expansion of Gawissa westwards, and an aggressive stance to other English kingdoms. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle records, for example, that Caolin fought a battle against Athelbert at a place called Wibbenden, at some point in the 580s. The entry in the chronicle suggests that Athelbert was the aggressor, since following his defeat at Wibbenden, it says that he was driven back into Kent. Sadly, we don't know anything else about this battle, we don't even know where Wibbenden is. Like Caolin and the other Bretwalders, Athelbert does seem to have established a sphere of influence of his own. In this case, it was quite a small sphere of influence, which encompassed much of southeastern England. We know, for example, that it was Athelbert who, in 604, had the Church of St. Paul's built in London. This stands out because, at the time, London was under the control of King Sæbert of Essex. This implies that Athelbert directly intervened in Essex to promote the conversion of that kingdom. This may have been because Sæbert was his nephew, and it certainly implies that the Kentish king held some kind of overlordship over Essex in the early 600s. Athelbert also seems to have enjoyed a close relationship with King Radwald of East Anglia. Again, probably around 604, although the dating is uncertain, Radwald was baptised in Kent. Bede only gives us that information, but it has been speculated that Athelbert served as the sponsor to the king's baptism. Bede does tell us elsewhere that Radwald's wife was a member of the East Saxon dynasty, and thus a relative of both Sebert and presumably Athelbert. It's possible, then, that the conversion of Essex was an impetus for Radwald's conversion. Unlike Essex, though, it is not clear if Athelbert was the overlord of East Anglia. There was certainly an alliance between the two, but if this reached the level of formal overlordship is debated. Although this all seems very impressive, in Essex and in East Anglia, as in Kent, Athelbert's power wasn't enough to affect a large-scale conversion of the population, all three kingdoms swiftly reverted to paganism upon the death of their Christian kings. Also, in the case of Radwald, there is debate over how genuine his conversion was in the first place. Bede, who it must be said did not care for Radwald, claims that he continued to make offerings to heathen gods, even after he formally embraced Christianity. If true, then this might have been a manner of hedging his bets, it could have been a way to appease his wife, or it could reflect a level of syncretism, the practice of combining ideas or practices from multiple religious systems to create something new. Athelbert's influence didn't reach far beyond Essex and East Anglia. It may have included Sussex, another kingdom which bordered Kent, but the evidence from there is so scanty in this early period that we really have no way of knowing. The Isle of Wight, too, remained resolutely pagan at this time, implying that Athelbert had minimal power there. In 602, he did organise a meeting on the banks of the River Severn between Augustine and the bishops of the Britons, which suggests some Kentish power to the west, but we don't know if this entailed any kind of overlordship. As for Mercia and Northumbria, there is no evidence of Kentish power in those regions, and they seem to have been far beyond Athelbert's sphere of influence. Indeed, at this point, it's unclear if Mercia even existed in any meaningful way outside of a loose confederation of Anglian tribes. Domestically, Athelbert broke new ground in Kent by promulgating the first written law code in English history around the year 602. The laws of Athelbert are the first laws written entirely in a Germanic language, obviously in this case Old English. These laws became a touchstone for later lawmakers, particularly Alfred the Great, who saw in them the beginning of Christian kingship among the English. Despite this reputation, though, the laws don't touch much at all on religious matters. Church property is defended early on, but other than that, their focus is entirely secular. They don't even impose fines for continued heathen worship. That would only come in later law codes once the church was more firmly established. Instead, the bulk of the laws dealt with law and order, specifically the payment of fines and wergild as a means to limit blood feud. This suggests that at this time, the Kentish monarchy was still relatively weak. Allusions in the laws to the king drinking in the homes of his retainers implies that the kingship was still itinerant at this time, with the king making the rounds among his nobles as a means to survey the land and enforce his will. Similarly, the emphasis placed on the payment of a fraction of any fines to the king suggests that this was the chief means of raising funds for the royal treasury, suggesting that the infrastructure of taxation also did not yet exist. This all makes it puzzling, then, when Bede says that Athelbert promulgated laws after the Roman manner, since there is nothing in these laws that derives from the Roman legal tradition. Instead, their focus on limiting feud, is comparable to laws of other Germanic peoples from this time, such as those of the Silesian Franks promulgated by King Clovis around the year 500. But even this comparison shouldn't be taken too far, since the laws of Athelbert still reflect the unique context of early Kent. Much like the conversion to Christianity, Athelbert's laws don't seem to have sparked a new shift in the hearts and minds of the Kentish people. The next Kentish law code indeed the next law code in Anglo-Saxon history, wasn't promulgated until the 690s. Athelbert's importance to Anglo-Saxon history is more the product of retrospection than any long-term impact his reign had. The Christianity he adopted was rejected by his son and his laws did not inspire his immediate heirs to create codes of their own. Similarly, his overlordship of southeastern England is elusive, with the spread of Christianity there under his influence being similarly short-lived. He doesn't seem to have been a great war leader, and it's hard to escape the idea that he was not especially charismatic. As the first Christian king in England, it's easy to see why Athelbert's legend grew following his death in 616. With someone as great as Bede singing his praises, how could it be otherwise? But when we strip away the later encomiums, Athelbert himself had a fairly minor impact. If his aim was to establish Christianity and a literate legal culture in Kent and its subject kingdoms, then certainly he failed. But his formal adoption of Christianity and that of his relatives did cross a line from which it would be hard to retreat. History is full of such rubicon moments, moments after which nothing can go back to the way it was before. Sometimes they are obvious but more often they are subtle, even something as subtle as a new idea. Athelbert's reign is one such moment. While in the short term it was something of a failure, in the long term it had repercussions which shaped England and the rest of Britain down to this day. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Once again, I've been your host Tom Kearns, and I hope you'll join me again next time.